Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. When you hear the East Coast town South End on Sea mentioned, what do you think of? The longest pier in the UK at 1.3 miles long? Or if you grew up in the East End of London, you might have childhood memories of visits to the seaside and eating jelly deals or pie and mash by the beach. Or you might just have watched that on EastEnders or Only Fools and Horses. I live nearby and it's an interesting town, lying only 40 miles east of central London and undergoing significant redevelopment at the moment. But in today's story, we explore the seedier parts of town and some of the people involved in the drugs trade who distribute their misery and collect their money around South End and other parts of South East Essex. But before we begin, a big thank you to my supporters on Patreon and especially my new supporters, that's Leia and Raina Amir. Bonus episode 15 will be released this week, which will be awesome, of course, and I'm so grateful for all your support. This is why I'm still able to record weekly, even if a tad late this week. Look, I'll just blame on technical issues, and I'm sure you find that one hard to believe. Number one in the charts in February 2001 was Atomic Kitten with Hole Again, keeping outcast with Miss Jackson off the top spot. As if I would make a Kerry Katona gag. As if. And number one in the US was Joe, featuring Mystical with Stutter. I must say a big thank you to my Australian listeners, who introduced me to the joys of Daryl Braithwaite, after I confessed to not knowing him last week. Wow, how did I miss this guy? For those of you who still don't recognise him, you can't fail to be entranced and moved to tears by some of his lyrics. For example, from his existential masterpiece, The Horses, Daryl explores the nature of being totally alone in the world with lyrics such as, We'll be riding on the horses, yeah, way up in the sky, little darling. Hell, what is there not to like? In 2001, the Australian album charts was topped by the soundtrack to Moulin Rouge, but the top 10 is like a who's who of artists who will surely stand the test of time. Powderfinger, Shaggy, a bit of heavier, more challenging music from Slipknot, sorry I meant Dido, and the ultimate legend that is Craig David, every day of the week. What a crop, huh? In the news this month, FBI agent Robert Hansen was arrested for spying for the Soviet Union. He was ultimately convicted and sentenced to life in prison. In the UK, the foot-and-mouth crisis began, and it was the month that saw the Selby rail crash in North Yorkshire. This disaster happened when a high-speed train and a Land Rover collided on the tracks and the train derailed. Ten people died, including the driver of the train involved. It remains the worst rail disaster of the 20th century in the UK. And so to Essex. Have you watched the film or read the book Essex Boys? It details the events of December 1995 at Rettendon in Essex, 
around 20 minutes drive from South End. When three drug dealers, Pat Tate, 37, Tony Tucker, 38, and Craig Rolfe, 26, were shot dead in a Range Rover down a deserted farm track. There were many rumours around why they were murdered, but there was no question that it was due to drugs. In a previous episode of this podcast, we spoke about 17-year-old Leah Betts from Essex who died following taking ecstasy, and photos of this healthy young woman dying were widely published in the media, leading to a real public outcry. It has been speculated that this triple murder was an act of revenge for Leah's death, with the three men killed on the orders of another drugs boss for allegedly being the gang who supplied the fatal tablet to Leah. But whatever the truth of this or otherwise... What is for sure is that the death of the three gangsters left an opening for others to take their place. One of those young, ambitious, wannabe gangsters was Damon Alvin. He started his criminal career in his early teens, and by his mid-twenties he was running a mini-drugs empire from his bungalow in Benfleet in Essex. Of course, success in this business is not without its risks. Over the last few years, there have been a number of drugs-related attacks and murders in South End. Just last month, the latest case wound up in court, where 23-year-old Alcy Holder stabbed 19-year-old Nico Ramsey on an anonymous South End street. What a place to die. The two had been involved in the same drugs network, but after a falling out, Nico brutally lost his life, with CCTV footage showing two men punching and kicking the victim easily on the ground, and Holder stabbing him twice in the chest. He was left dying in the streets, calling for help as his attackers fled. Look, I didn't know Nico, of course, but he was involved in the drugs trade, so we can surmise he was no angel who knew the risks. But still, he was a 19-year-old man who had his whole future snuffed out violently in South End. So who was the Nico Ramsey behind the headlines? He was a grime rapper who had dreams of opening his own cafe. In a statement released, his family said they missed his kind spirit and cheeky smile. He'd a life full of hope and promise ahead of him, they added. Nico was family-orientated, forever loyal and full of hope and ambition to do well. He was a caring and genuine young man who loved his brothers, nieces, nephews and cousin, always encouraging and supporting them to do well too. In testament to his loyalty, Nico was with his girlfriend, Gels, for more than seven years. Having survived leukaemia as a child, the family said it was so tragic to see him taken away by killers at just 19. Now we will never see Nico grow into an adult, see his children, or see him open his own cafe. Just in South End, there are many other tragic, similar stories of real people, not just the stats, all around the drugs trade. But back to our story, and Damon Alvin. Over the years, he'd been convicted of several offences and been in and out of prison. He had convictions for violence, burglary and drugs offences. And police intelligence showed he was a skilled liar who was involved with firearms. During one trip to prison, he met a man called Dean Boschel. Dean was born and grew up in Basildon, Essex with his mum Beverly and his brother Wayne. Wayne stayed out of trouble and lived quietly with his wife, working as a train driver. But Dean unfortunately got in with the wrong crowd at school, which as we know is so easy to happen. To try to avoid the path his life was following, he moved from Essex to Leeds, home of world football. 
Dean stayed in Leeds from around 1992 to 1995, no doubt enjoying the mighty Leeds United, pipping Minnows Man United, to become champions of English football in 1992, before moving back down south to Essex, where he once more got into trouble and ended up in jail. In a letter written to his mum while serving time in prison in October 1999, Dean described his daughter, who was with her mum in Leeds. He wrote, I would like you to meet your granddaughter, Lauren. I would like Lauren to know her nan. She's four now and had her birthday party last month. We hired her out to Castle for the day. She's still at play school. She looks a lot like me when I was a kid, but she won't end up like me. She's the most loveliest kid, apart from she has a stammer all the time, just like he did. It was during this spell in the slammer that he met Damon Alvin. On his release, he met another of Alvin's pals, Ricky Percival, who was also a drug dealer who built up a network of customers around the Essex bodybuilding scene. They all drank in the same pub in South End, the Woodcutter's Arms, and knew many of the same people. But the relationships weren't of equals, and Boschel was seen as a much weaker individual, a friend of and gopher for Alvin, and an associate of Percival. He looked up to both of them, calling Percival his mate, and Alvin his brother. It was the 28th of February 2001, when the police knocked on Beverly Boschel's door. When she saw them, she first feared that something had happened to her train-driving son Wayne. After all, with the Selby rail crash, train safety was in the news. But it was about her 24-year-old son, Dean. He'd been found dead in South End at 9.20am that morning. Like any mum for Beverly, this was her very worst nightmare come true. By the time Dean Boschel's blood-soaked body was found in allotments on the outskirts of South End, rigor mortis had set in. The police quickly established that the three gunshot wounds to the head were all fired from the same gun, which was probably a Colt's revolver. He'd been dead for some time. One shot was to the back of the head. Two of the wounds to the left side of the head had been inflicted when the gun was very close to or in contact with the skin, presumably fired when Dean was already on the ground. Other injuries included a laceration to the back of the scalp caused by a blunt instrument such as the gun or by him hitting his head when he fell, and a skin rash on the left side of his neck and face, consistent with contact with bleach or ammonia. Three bullets were recovered from the scene of the shooting, two from Dean's head, but the gun was not found. Neighbours living near the allotments had heard disturbances at various times of the previous night, which fitted well with police estimates of Dean's death. To police, the murder strongly suggested that rivalries between groups of criminals engaged in supplying drugs in the region had boiled over. Detectives turned first to two known associates of the dead man, Damien Alvin and Ricky Percival. Percival, Alvin and two other pals, Kevin Walsh and Katie Griffiths, told police that they'd been together in Walsh's home on the 27th of February from about 10.45pm until in the case of Percival about 1130 or just after midnight, and in the case of Alvin, about half past midnight. Percival said he then returned home alone, and Alvin said he was picked up by his wife and returned home with her. Walsh's home was close to the allotments where Dean was found the following day. Percival and Alvin also said that they'd started the evening drinking together in the woodcutter's arms 
and that when they'd left there, they'd each temporarily returned home. Percival said he picked up Alvin from the latter's home at about 10.30pm and driven to Walsh's. Alvin said the same, saying they left the pub at about 930 and arrived at Walsh's home at about 10.45. When asked about Dean Boschel, Percival said he had not seen Dean for some weeks before his death, and Alvin said he had not seen Dean for some days before he died. An investigation was launched, but as is often the case of a crime of this nature, the police inquiries stalled and nobody was talking. Well, I say that, and this is where the story begins to get very murky, as people were talking, but just what they were saying, and to whom, depends on who you believe. There are unproven allegations of police involvement and corruption, perish the very thought, huh? And many people hold very different views on what happened next. But I will continue with the facts of the stories I see them as best I can. The inquiry was frustrating for police, but despite the dead ends, it always seemed to point to one man being responsible for the murder, Alvin. He was arrested three times in three years for killing Dean, and was often pressed to talk and name others who might have been involved, but he always refused. After his third arrest, detectives charged Alvin with the murder of Dean Boschel on the basis of mobile phone evidence, which proved his alibi for the night was a lie. The mobile footprint revealed that Alvin had driven to Southend to collect Dean on the night he died, something he'd neglected to mention to police. Ricky Percival, along with Griffiths and Walsh, were charged with conspiracy to pervert the course of justice, with police alleging they'd made up an alibi for the night. The police actually felt they'd accurately pieced together what had happened on the night of the murder, and they were helped by a man called Jason Spendiff Smith, whom Dean Boschel had been spending a lot of time with in the months before his death. From Spendiff Smith, the police learned that Dean had planned to meet his brother, Alvin, and his mate, Percival, on the evening of the 27th of February, to carry out a raid to steal cannabis plants from a skunk farm in a village outside Chelmsford. On the 25th of February 2001, Dean took Spendiff Smith to his home to show him a handgun and three bullets, which Dean was given by Percival, along with £250 to take on the job. Whilst Alvin and Percival committed the robbery, Dean was to be the getaway driver, but instead Dean was shot three times in the head at close range and left to die. There was other evidence that the story was true and that Dean was involved in the cannabis farm job. He'd even told his boss at work the previous evening this is what he had planned. I guess he had a kind of different relationship with his boss than me. But in this gangland world of drugs and violence, everyone has their own motivations for their actions. And police had their reservations about relying on Spendiff Smith. He wasn't the most reliable of witnesses. On the 1st of April 2003, Alvin was arrested in possession of a kilo of cocaine. On the 2nd of April 2003, an intelligence interview was conducted with a view to seeing if Alvin would assist the police by providing information which might gain mitigation of any sentence that he might receive for his drug crime. He was prepared to implicate Percival in the supply of a consignment of 60 kilos of cannabis. Think about the environment at this time. Police in Essex were under real pressure to clean up the drugs gangs. Although many in the public were fascinated by gang murders, 
for senior police officers, it was disastrous for their careers and it had to stop. Alvin was floated the option of becoming a supergrass and telling the police all he knew to help them put some of the drugs criminals behind bars. In exchange, he was offered a new life for his family, but he declined the offer. On the 16th of April 2003, while still in custody, Alvin was arrested for the murder of Dean Boschel, and this time police interviewed him as a suspect. The police put it to Alvin that Percival had been responsible for the murder, but that Alvin was also present and complicit, since as a friend of Dean, the police made it clear that if he'd wanted to, he could have stopped Dean's murder. Alvin repeatedly said no comment as the allegations were put to him. However, there were still continuing conservations about what could be done by way of the Witness Protection Programme to ensure the safety of Alvin's family were he willing to speak frankly. His pregnant wife Claire visited him, but she wasn't interested in witness protection as it would mean moving away from her family and friends and her entire life. Police tried to interview Ricky Percival, but with no success as he was in Spain. Percival, when he did come back to Essex, gave evidence that he'd been tipped off by a corrupt detective who had offered him the friendly advice to go on holiday. Percival thought that was in connection with the risk of being arrested for the supply of 60 kilos of cannabis, not the murder of Dean Boschel. Ex-gangster turned journalist and filmmaker Bernard Emani explained in an email to True Crime Publishing how Alvin made up a story to avoid seven years in jail for this drugs offence. In his pre-court reports, he claimed that following the death of Dean Boschel, he became very low and depressed. He claims he was diagnosed as suffering from depression, so much so he began to self-medicate his condition, initially with cocaine. He claimed that he'd only used the drug occasionally at first and socially, but after moving to the Benfleet area, he became increasingly involved with heavy cocaine users. This resulted in Alvin's habits spiralling out of control to the point whereby he was using up to £250 worth of the drug a week. Alvin said he was able to conceal his drug dependency from his wife, but when refurbishments were required at his home, he secured a £10,000 loan from drug dealers and a further £5,000 from them at a later date. At first there were no problems with the arrangement, but Alvin said as his drug habit escalated further, and he fell behind with repayments, the relationship between him and his creditors began to sour. In December 2002, matters came to a head when Alvin was confronted by a number of men who demanded their money back. Alvin asked for more time to pay, but the men refused to listen. Alvin claims he was stabbed in the leg and then beaten with a hammer. As he lay on the floor bleeding, Alvin was told that if he didn't pay or somehow work the debt off, Future attacks would involve him not only being hurt, but it would also be members of his family. Alvin said he initially refused to comply with the gang's demands, but when the threats escalated further and they demanded the full amount, he reluctantly agreed to work off some of the debt by making a delivery of cocaine on behalf of the gang. It was while transporting a kilo of cocaine from Leon C to Canvey Island on behalf of the gang that Alvin was arrested. To add further colour to his story, he arranged for his wife and mother-in-law to cut out letters from newspapers to create threatening notes and he told another member of the family to send him a wreath at home to supplement his claims. He also used hospital records from an injury he received during a domestic row as evidence he'd been attacked. His ruse worked 
and Alvin, rather than getting seven years in prison, was sentenced to only 30 months imprisonment for this crime. By 2006, police decided they'd enough evidence to secure a conviction against Alvin for murder, and along with Percival, he stood trial for the murder of Dean Boschel. In an excellent article in the Guardian newspaper, Sandra Laville explains just how two weeks into the trial at Chelmsford Crown Court, while lawyers were still in the preliminary stages arguing about admissible evidence, Alvin indicated he wanted to change his story. He spoke to police after a successful application by the prosecution lawyers to admit into evidence police contact sheets which would reveal to a jury key information, which was that Dean Boschel was in fact a police informant who had been passing information to detectives about Alvin for a number of years. The argument they were following meant that this information would provide a clear motive for why Alvin would want to murder Dean Boschel. Sensationally, the trial was immediately stopped, and in interviews with the police, Alvin turned on his long-time associate and accused Percival of being responsible for Dean's death. Alvin now admitted for the first time that he'd been at the allotment on the night of the murder, but said he had stood by as Percival first threw bleach in the victim's face before shooting him dead. Alvin also implicated Percival in a string of other crimes that he himself was suspected of, including the attempted murder of three people in a gangland feud. Eight days later, and the CPS sent Alvin a letter announcing that the Dean Boschel murder charge was being dropped and entered into a deal with police and prosecutors, which required him to confess all his criminality. Then in December 2006, after an 11-week trial, Percival was convicted on the basis of Alvin's evidence of the murder of Dean Boschel. Alvin told the court how Percival had seen himself as untouchable before the alleged killing. He told Chelmsford Crown Court he drove Percival to a house in Southend in June 1999, where he claimed Percival had shot three people. Alvin continued that this attack was Percival intent on revenge on the Tretton family, whom he blamed for a fatal stabbing. Ricky felt he was becoming untouchable by getting away with three attempted murders, he added. He also told the jury of a robbery that he and Percival carried out at a snooker club in Wickford in August 1999. Alvin said that he punched a manager in the face before Percival squeezed ammonia in the man's face. He said that Percival had carried a handgun for the robbery and Alvin also claimed that Percival had squirted ammonia in the face of Dean Boschel before he shot him at the allotments in 2001. After deliberating for 25 hours, the jury believed Alvin and in December 2006, Ricky Percival was found guilty of the murder of Dean Boschel and the three attempted murders of the Tretton family. He was given life with a recommendation he serve a minimum of 28 years in prison. Judge Christopher Ball QC told him, You've been convicted of what I judge to be the brutal and cruel killing of Dean Boschel, one of your criminal associates who had the misfortune that night to cross you. The manner of his killing has not surprisingly been described as an execution. This was the most wicked of murders by a man who plainly suffers from no psychiatric disorders, but simply a man with a grave, an aggressive violent streak running through him. You're an unstable and volatile young man. Anyone that crosses you, however slightly, is at great risk of harm. Alongside him in the dock, Kevin Walsh was found guilty of perverting the course of justice 
after providing a false alibi for Percival on the night of the murder. Jailing him for three and a half years, Judge Ball said, The sentence must take into account the gravity of the principal offence of which perverting the course of justice was directed. In this case, it was murder. Supporters of Ricky Percival were astonished by his conviction. The only evidence police had for the murder was the evidence of Alvin, who they argued clearly did this deal with the police to escape the murder charge. The other main witness for the prosecution was Gordon Osborne, who said he had heard the shots. But his evidence was flimsy, to say the least. When Osborne first spoke to the police, he said, Half of me thinks that I may have heard a bang, but I couldn't be sure. I don't know what time I heard this bang, but it was possibly 10, 11, 30 hours. But four and a half years later, his memory of the event seemed much clearer when he said, I woke up at about 23 hours that evening. I heard two or three gunshots coming from the allotment. I can't be more specific about the time, but I had a digital alarm clock by the bed which I did look at. I immediately recognised the sounds as coming from a handgun. This type of weapon has a distinctive sound, totally different to a shotgun or rifle. I've had experience of firearms since I was 11, when I shot rifles with the Sea Cadets. I remained in cadets until the age of 16, and at the age of 17 I joined the Royal Marines, staying with them for 18 months. His evidence had real credibility as he told the court that he understood guns due to a military background training with the Marines. He said that although since leaving the Marines he'd not had any dealings with firearms, it was like riding a bike and you never forget what you have learnt and the sound each weapons make. He said he couldn't say how far away these shots were, but all he could say that the sounds definitely came from the back of his house. But journalist Bernard Omani points out that George Osborne had never actually been in the Royal Marines. He'd never undergone the weapon training he boasted about, and therefore his claim that he could distinguish the sounds of these weapons being fired just wasn't accurate. He was enlisted in the Royal Navy on the 30th of January 1967, but discharged less than five months later because he was deemed to be unsuitable. Suddenly, the evidence of George Osborne seems far less credible. Peter Human, a solicitor who has acted for Percival, said, There is something strange in relying on uncorroborated evidence from a person of simply appalling character. Prosecutors described the case as unique. The first time a murder charge had been dropped against one individual, who then went on to become the Crown star supergrass witness against another man who was ultimately convicted. But Sandra Leville points out that the activities of Essex detectives and prosecutors, and the lengths they went to in order to convict someone for the murder, are coming under scrutiny, along with a string of other convictions, which have relied solely on the uncorroborated word of supergrasses. Today Alvin is under a new identity, having been relocated following two and a half years in jail for a string of offences he admitted as part of the agreement he entered into with the police. Over the months he was held in a safe house during his supergrass interviews and police documents show officers spent nearly £35,000 on him, including £7,000 towards a new car and £500 on a laptop. He received money to top up his mobile phone, pay parking fees and even buy an enclosure for his tortoises. Alvin also benefited to the tune of £190,000 from the sale of his house, allegedly facilitated by the police while he was in jail. Land registry records show the property changed hands on the 22nd of November 2006 
for £250,000. It is understood there was a £60,000 mortgage on the house. A source close to the process said the police were always in the background of the sale. Under the Proceeds of Crime Act, the Essex force could have seized the money from the sale, but no seizure was made and the proceeds went to Alvin. Under the terms of the Witness Protection Scheme Alvin entered into, he had to confess all his criminality. Yet court papers show he did not reveal one key element to his criminality that could breach the protection agreement he entered into and which raises questions about his credibility as the Crown Star witness. Alvin failed to tell police that he previously lied in court, potentially perjuring himself, in order to gain the reduced sentence for possession of a kilogram of cocaine. But despite these huge doubts about his evidence, Alvin and his family are living their new life as part of the Witness Protection Programme. I know there are plenty of negatives to this sort of programme, but God, it has to be life in prison for murder. So what of Ricky Percival? Well, he still languishes in a prison cell. Percival, who is dyslexic and learns only to read and write when in prison, told The Guardian, I still can't really believe what happened to me. When I first came to prison, I was in some kind of intense shock. I couldn't sleep, I was having nightmares. I was turning it all over in my mind. How could this happen in the British justice system? They had to put me on medication because I was suffering from such anxiety and shock. And today it feels the same. The shock is as raw. What makes it even harder is that anyone who has a good understanding of my case says, how did a jury convict you? Percival, who admits he played a major role in the Essex gangland drug world, but still insists he isn't a killer, has lost a number of appeals about his sentence. In one failed appeal, the Court of Appeal said the case was unique in that it relied on its essence on the evidence of a witness Alvin, who'd been charged but acquitted on the same murder as that of which Percival was tried, and the case stood or fell on Alvin's evidence. But after considering the case, astonishingly the judges ruled there was a richness to Alvin's story, which made it believable, and they refused the appeal. They've also ruled Alvin's evidence had been highly believable, and they threw out the appeal. Ricky Percival's latest unsuccessful appeal was in 2016, but even today he's still hopeful of justice. So what do you make of what we've heard today? I wonder if there's anyone out there who really believes that Ricky Percival was guilty of murder in this case. He did some bad things, sure, really bad things. But was he guilty of this crime? I don't think so. His mum, as you'd expect, also doesn't think so. She said, As a mother, I'm really sad my son took the wrong way of life. There's thousands of people nowadays who've got children who are not 100% perfect, but he doesn't deserve this. He got 26 years. He'll be 53 when he comes out. She believes his conviction was too dependent on the evidence of Supergrass Alvin, and he never received a fair trial. I would say that after all these years he's institutionalised, which is good in the respect he's not brooding or fretting, she added. I feel sorry for the lady whose son was killed, but I don't feel that my son should pay. My son has done wrong, I know that, but he's not a murderer. There is no proof that he did any of these things. It's all Alvin's word against his. If I thought my son was a murderer, I would never stick by him. But his mum is unlikely to see him for a while when he is released from UK jail.
Recent press reports suggest that when he is released, he'll be extricated to Spain. When in Spain in the early 2000s, after allegedly being tipped off by a detective to avoid Alvin's drug bust, if you recall, it's reported he was involved in drug dealing over there. On one occasion, a deal is said to have gone wrong, resulting in him being stabbed. Percival is said to have driven away in a car but crashed, allegedly killing Basildon-born associate Frank Wright. Spanish authorities want to extricate him, but it's unlikely the UK would agree to do so until he's finished serving his UK sentence. If you want to hear more about the complexities of this case, there's lots on the internet, and there's also now a book and a film about Dean's death. But speaking in 2015, for Dean's mum Beverly, this is yet another reminder of her son's death. Speaking to the local paper, she said, I still think about my son and I get upset a lot over him. It's something which hangs over our family and none of us see why people should still be going on about it. It's happened. Someone's been killed and someone else has been locked up. That's how we see it. But I suppose because it's got a lot to do with the Essex boys and that's been going on for years. But Beverly said she was convinced of Percival's guilt and that she was angered by what she saw as money being made from her son's murder. She said, They're cashing in on my son's death, and it seems to me that as long as they get their money, they don't care. They don't care whether they tell the truth or not, so long as it tells a good story that's buttered up how they want, then they're happy. I'm not too sure I agree with Beverly there. I think I take the alternate view, which is held by many others, who think this case should be aired more and more, So hopefully, this clear injustice can be righted. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please support the show at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime, where you can access 14 full-length bonus episodes, along with other exclusive content. And do please join us on Facebook to discuss this case and any other aspects of UK True Crime. So that is all for me for now. I'm off to a Daryl Braithwaite karaoke session to belt out horses at the top of my voice. So until next week, it's cheerio and remember, stay classy.